I hope you have your Bibles with you. And if you do, please turn to Matthew 9. Matthew 9. Norm read for us just a moment ago from this text, starting in verse 14. You'll find it on page 814. If one of the Bibles in the backs of the chairs would serve you, please use it. Our walk through Matthew's gospel and his message of the unexpected kingdom of Jesus has contained some breathtaking scenes and stories of the life and ministry of Jesus. And every so often, one of the scenes in the life and ministry of Jesus that the gospel writers show us contains Jesus using one of his most brilliant and well-known teaching techniques, and that is parables. Now, I acknowledge that depending on your definition of a parable, this passage may or may not qualify in your mind as a parable, because it's not really a story, but it is, at the very least, parabolic. What we have in this passage is an account of a critique from some of John the Baptist's disciples, and then Jesus' response to them in the form of some parabolic illustrations. When we get into more depth, uh, fuller parables themselves, we'll talk a little bit more about parables. But for now, just acknowledge that these are parabolic in nature. And so there are three scenes in this text, in Matthew 9, 14-17, Three scenes, the first of which is a scene of what's just taking place here, starting in verse 14, when it says, The disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? The question that John the Baptist's disciples are asking Jesus is essentially, Do you even fast, bro? It doesn't seem like the scene has changed very much from the previous passage, this feast at Matthew's home. But just like in the previous scene, there are critics that are questioning Jesus. The first scene, just several, several verses ago, was the scribes critiquing Jesus. The second scene is the Pharisees in the last passage critiquing Jesus. And now in this passage, we see John the Baptist's disciples doing so. And so if indeed the scene hasn't changed and Jesus is still feasting at Matthew's house when this question comes to him, remember, feasting at Matthew's home as a tax collector and many other tax collectors with him and other sinners, different kinds of sinners with him, this was a scandalous event, a scandalous activity for Jesus to participate in in the eyes of those watching. But on top of all that, apparently it was also noticed that Jesus and his disciples didn't fast. Now we're not told in the text exactly what caused them to notice this, so we don't really need to know. But it is possible that this occasion could have been taking place on one of the traditional days for Jewish fasting, which was Mondays and Thursdays. And that would explain why it was so noticeable at this event that Jesus and his disciples weren't fasting. So maybe this was one of those fasting days. Maybe it wasn't. But either way, Jesus and his disciples are not fasting at all in this situation. They're feasting, quite literally. 
Now, as I read this passage, I wondered and asked myself and studied accordingly, are these disciples of John the Baptist hostile towards Jesus in their questioning, much like the scribes and Pharisees were? Or are they asking a sincere question out of their confusion? And there's evidently, as I studied and read further, there's evidently some debate about this. It's certainly plausible that John's disciples here were well-intentioned, seeking answers to their questions. Their leader, John the Baptist, was imprisoned at this time, and so they couldn't exactly go to him for teaching. And John the Baptist had pointed out himself that Jesus was the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He had said, John the Baptist had said of Jesus, he must increase and I must decrease. His whole purpose, John's function in life, was to point to Jesus. In fact, John the Baptist is the one who started the whole repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand thing. If you just turn back a couple of pages, you'll see in Matthew 3, we looked at this a long time ago, Matthew 3 verses 1 through 2, it says, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then when you go one chapter forward to verse 17 of chapter 4, you see this. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so John's message was the same as Jesus' message in this way. And so John's disciples should have and could have thought of Jesus in the same way that John did. But when Jesus came and started preaching, as recorded in chapter 4, 17, the same message of repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, just as John the Baptist had done, maybe John the Baptist's disciples surmised that Jesus' ministry would look exactly the same as John's. And when they began to see some differences in their respective practices, such as with fasting, maybe they were confused. Maybe they were troubled and discouraged anyway because of John's imprisonment. And perhaps when they see this taking place, they're confused and in need of teaching and sought it from Jesus in this moment. But you know, it's also very plausible that this was a much more legalistic, judgmental, self-righteous critique from those who had been corrupted by the Pharisees' influence while their teacher was imprisoned. In fact, that's what John Calvin, the great reformer, thought. He said in his commentary that he thought there was no doubt at all that the Pharisees, because of their mention of the Pharisees here in verse 14, had been corrupted by the Pharisees. They drew John the Baptist's disciples to their party and then led them into this quarrel about earthly, extra-biblical trifles. And you see more details in Mark and Luke that... that Um, continue this idea. In fact, Calvin's commentary is a a harmony of the synoptic gospels, and so he's putting them all together and expressing his opinion on the, the Pharisees' influence here, or at least their possible influence. And we know that the Pharisees had made a spectacle of fasting, and that was part of why Jesus's words in the Sermon on the Mount were spoken the way they were, words about those who took great pride in their fasting and their application of the exact way they did it and how that was not the correct way to fast. And so it is not at all an implausible connection here between the Pharisees and the disciples of John the Baptist's question. Jesus had, had took on head-on 
the Pharisees and their fasting practices. And maybe as a result, they're stirring up some strife about it. But you know, there's even, a, there's even a third option here, that it's plausible that John the Baptist's disciples could have been being self-righteous and legalistic even without the influence of the Pharisees. It's possible that they were so devoted to their tradition and John the Baptist's tradition that they got a little indignant at the attention that Jesus and his new way was getting. You will recall, perhaps, that John the Baptist was what's known as an ascetic. In other words, he was denying himself worldly comforts and pleasures. Thus, you see him described as one with rough clothing and someone who lived in the wilderness and someone who ate very strange things, if he ate at all. As we see here, he was committed to fasting. Clearly, verse 14 tells us that these disciples of John and John himself were actively participating in and devoted to the practice of fasting. And so again, maybe John's absence leaves his disciples a little confused about what the purpose and nature and heart behind this particular tradition was. John was living out his message of repentance, a message of turning away from the world and turning to God. He was living this out in part certainly through his proclamation of the Word of God, but also by restraining his own world-bound impulses, such as food and clothing and other pleasures, some of which are not even bad. But those things, those commitments of John and, by extension, his disciples, including fasting, should not have been a, a rote prescription ritualistically followed to a T all the time. It's possible that John the Baptist's disciples thought that the tradition of fasting that they followed, in whatever form it took, whether it was the the Jewish tradition of Mondays and Thursdays or not, was necessary. When actually, it was just one means of disciplining themselves to look for and wait for the arrival of the kingdom which the Jews longed for. And that is the whole point here. The kingdom had arrived. Jesus had come. And so it's hard to say for certain which exactly of these possibilities led to their question, but I tend to think that they are being critical here, whether it's Pharisee-influenced or not. It seems to me to fit with everything else going going on in the context of this passage with these questions and criticisms of Jesus coming at him in both the immediate and broader context. But regardless of where exactly this question is coming from, Jesus' response is the same, and the, the issue at the heart of all this is the same. The issue is their devotion to man-made tradition preventing them from seeing Jesus' presence superseding man-made tradition. It was always about him. And he was there. Now let's think about how this might apply to us for just a minute here. Because what lies behind the question here is important to wrestle with in order to understand the message of the whole passage. If these disciples of John the Baptist's question came from a place of legalism, judgmental criticism, pharisaic or otherwise, there are some important implications for us here. 
And I think that it is coming from a critical and legalistic place. And if it's being influenced by the Pharisees, one important thing to note here is that we must have wisdom and exercise caution to avoid those who divide God's people over non-essentials. Remember, at the end of Romans, Paul calls the Christians, these are his words, to watch out for those who cause divisions and avoid them. And Calvin actually goes on in his commentary on on the harmony of these Gospels here. He says uh, uh, regarding the Pharisees, we ought especially to beware lest the unity of faith be destroyed, the bond of charity broken on account of outward ceremonies. That's some fancy language, but I think you understand what he's saying. Watch out that unity and charity not be sacrificed for the sake of some outward ritual that the Scriptures do not require. Kind of like when church is divided over whether or not Christians should or shouldn't wear masks or socially distance. Kind of like when Christians harshly quarrel or divide over preferences on parenting styles or children's ministry methods. Kind of like when factions develop around political strategies that are within the bounds of Christian liberty. So, that's one implication. Another is this. Many Christians are greatly and unnecessarily troubled about the importance of external methods in pursuing godliness. And as a result, they become very prideful. And Calvin uses the word fastidious. They become fastidious. That's a fancy word that simply means being overly concerned about perfect accuracy around every minute detail. And so out of a concern for external conformity to a method in the pursuit of godliness, a method that may not be scripturally prescribed, they become very prideful, they become very fastidious, and they want everyone else to copy their example because they understand what's best. But those kinds of Christians need to remember that what makes someone a child of God and a member of his kingdom is what they believe about Jesus, not their external conformity to the rules. And anytime you start drawing lines around people based on what they do instead of in whom they profess to believe, then you're in Pharisee territory. And you better watch out. And you might be saying, but, but what about the importance of fruit? And I say this, The examination of fruit in people's lives is certainly essential in determining the validity of teaching and teachers. But you know, there's also something called progressive sanctification. And there's also this person called the Holy Spirit who indwells his people and brings them along by grace. And so before you go around with your proverbial clipboard trying to do the Holy Spirit's job of making sure everyone's fruit is all perfectly squared away, you'd better be sure that you're okay with someone examining all of your fruit. How would you feel if someone was making sure your checklist was up to snuff? 
looking at your life. That's what Jesus is saying in chapter 6 when he said that by the same judgment that you judge others with, you will be judged. So those are a couple of implications for if this question came from a place of criticism and Pharisaic legalism. But what if their question was sincere? What implications does that hold for us? Well, I think we still need to see that they were confused and concerned about the wrong thing. This pattern, if they were conforming to the, to the Jewish tradition of two times a week on Mondays and, Mondays and Thursdays, we need to realize that that actually went beyond what the Old Testament commanded. That was not a command to fast on Mondays and Thursdays every week. And whether John the Baptist and his disciples did that exact same thing, we don't know. But we certainly get the impression that they were concerned about it because they were noticing that Jesus wasn't doing it, whatever the circumstance around that particular event. And that was a problem. Because Jesus had no problem with many traditions passed down from generations that were helpful for some people in some circumstances and at certain times. But those traditions were ultimately subservient to him and his mission. And what we see in the text here as we move on is that Jesus was totally fine with the impression that they were getting that he wasn't fasting. And that he wasn't even really concerned about it. And that leads to his response here, which is the second scene in verse 15. I never gave you the first one, did I? There it is on the screens. Jesus' critics' devotion to old tradition is the first scene here. The second one you find in verse 15, which is Jesus' response having to do with delight versus distress. What Jesus does here is answer their question with a question of his own. The master teacher is putting on a clinic. He does this all the time. He gets to the heart of their question by asking a different kind of question that goes far deeper than their original question. And in response to their question, Jesus asks essentially what would have been to them a no-brainer. He says in verse 15, Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? He's essentially saying, do people mourn at a wedding? Understanding what happened at weddings in Jesus' context is important to understand what he's saying here. It makes enough sense to us in our own context that weddings are typically a time of delight, not distress, but it went farther in Jesus' context than it does in ours. Wedding celebrations at this time and in this place lasted a week. Which sounds awesome to me. People took time off of work and they had a wedding to get to for that week. And they dedicated themselves to having a really good time. There was good food. There was good wine. There was dancing. There was fellowship. There was joy. There was a celebration. And what Jesus is saying is for someone to be at an occasion like this and instead of celebrating and having a good time, lamenting, refusing food, restraining themselves from the various delights of the party that someone had paid a lot of money for and put a lot of time into, well, that would have been insulting and highly inappropriate. And so at the bare minimum, what Jesus is saying here in his response through his question is that fasting would be just as inappropriate in his presence as it would be to be mournful at a wedding. Which is quite the thing to say if you think about it. 
He's saying that just his very presence with them is reason for delight, not distress. He's saying the bridegroom has come and now the bridegroom and bride are together and it's like a wedding and it's joyous, not sobering. But he's saying more than that too. He actually uses the word bridegroom here very deliberately and brilliantly. John the Baptist actually used the word bridegroom in John chapter 3. Turn a few pages over to John 3 and we'll read just a few verses there to see this. John 3 starting in verse 25. John 3:25 Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. They're talking about Jesus. Verse 27, John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. So what John is clearly doing there is comparing his relationship to Jesus as being like a friend of a bridegroom. He's clearly saying that he's the friend in the passage and pointing to Jesus as the bridegroom in his little analogy phrasing here. And so John, these disciples of John's uh, teacher, had used the word bridegroom, that language, to refer to Jesus before. And now Jesus is using it here. Do you see the brilliance of that? Jesus is talking about himself just like John the Baptist, their leader, had talked about him. And he is deliberately doing it with John's disciples because they would have been familiar with that kind of language that kind of terminology. So it's beautiful. Jesus is using these words of John the Baptist intentionally with John's disciples, but that's still not all there is to this. We also need to note some of the uses of the word bridegroom in the Old Testament, and I've put them on the screen so we don't have to turn around too much. Jeremiah 2, 1 through 2. The word of the Lord came to me saying, go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. Isaiah 54 verses 5 through 6, for your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is His name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth He is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. And then to a passage that Jesus, or a book that Jesus just quoted in Matthew, Hosea chapter 2, verses 14-16. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. 
Now, do you notice in each of these three Old Testament prophecy passages, the one speaking in this text, in each text, is referring to himself as a bridegroom, whether implicitly or explicitly. So the speaker here is calling himself a bridegroom. But you must also notice that the one speaking is Yahweh himself. Yahweh is speaking to Israel, calling Israel, his chosen people, his bride, and calling himself her bridegroom. And so that means that Jesus, speaking to Jews, is using the analogy of a bridegroom to describe his arrival to Israel. And that analogy was the same analogy used hundreds of years earlier and recorded by the prophets to describe Yahweh's relationship to Israel. Do you see how breathtaking this is? What Jesus is saying is that he is Yahweh. He is the promised one. He is God incarnate. Come as the bridegroom to be with his bride, Israel. Now, who knows how many of the people in this moment in Matthew 9 picked it up. It's a little implicit. But whoever did pick it up would have thought it scandalous if they were rejecting him. We know Matthew got it because he puts it here. And we know that his disciples get it because the New Testament writers point to this stuff much more uh, explicitly than implicitly. And so, in effect, what Jesus is saying here in this second scene is that there is no need for his followers to fast right now because my arrival is cause for celebration. And you know, this flew in the face of so much of the religious status quo at that moment. And we know clearly that Jesus didn't go around critiquing all tradition all religious practice of the Jews. But he did critique anything that wasn't compatible with his gospel message of true, real, and lasting righteousness found only through repentance of sin and faith in him. And I think another question that we might have when reading this story is therefore answered here. Why, I asked Myself, why is this story included in this section? It might seem a little bit random. Some of the language a little weddings, wineskins. What are we talking about here? But Matthew is including this story in his building case to the Jews that Jesus was and forever is the long-awaited Christ, the Messiah, the chosen one of God with all authority and power. And in fact, this, this passage, verses 14 and following, is the third instance of Jesus having no problem at all equating himself with God. And so yet again, we have Matthew making the point that Jesus is God, that he is the Messiah, that he is the Christ. But you'll notice that these are not the only words that Jesus speaks here. He also says in the second part of verse 15, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. He's saying that while his presence is reason for delight, not distress, there will come a time again for fasting and what fasting communicates. That's what he's saying here. And this is is Jesus' first hint in, in Matthew that he would be taken away from them at some point. 
course, it'll be more explicitly stated later on and multiple times. But for now, this is a somewhat veiled reference to his coming suffering and death and burial and, of course, resurrection and even ascension that was on the horizon where Jesus, the bridegroom, would be taken away. And when that all happened, after it all happened, when Jesus left this earth, a season of waiting and of longing and of lament and of therefore personal discipline and restraint in an effort to connect our physical lives with the spiritual realities would be a good thing to do again. And so all of this supports what Jesus is saying about His presence being cause for delight, not distress. Because the ultimate reality, the ultimate reason for joy had come in the appearance and presence and ministry of Jesus of Nazareth. But friends, we do also need to see here that our time, our lives living between ascension and second coming is a time of both delight and distress. In a very real sense, brothers and sisters, Jesus' departure is distressing to us to this very day because we long to see his face. We long for him to return and to bring full and final fruition to every aspect of the plan of redemption. We long for sin and suffering and sorrow to be gone forever. And so we wish Jesus would come back. And sometimes for us, fasting can help us tune in to reality. Reality. What's real about the fact that we need God even more than we need physical food because physical life and sustenance means nothing in the end if we don't have Jesus. Sometimes fasting helps us turn our attention to the need for discipline and for restraint of our earthly passions and pleasures and desires for the sake of our growth in holiness and Christlikeness. And so fasting with Jesus, excuse me, fasting while we don't have Jesus with us can be a good thing. And friends, I do think we should see this here. But also, my friends, in just as real a sense, brothers and sisters, listen to me. I know it's hard. We live in a time for joy. The Messiah has come. He has reconciled God and man. He has forgiven our sins. He has left His Spirit with us. He has united Jews and Gentiles in the new covenant. And we are raised with Him. We are seated with Him in the heavenly places, the Apostle Paul says. Right now, spiritually, with Him in heaven. And so friends, the message here is both. The people of Christ have cause for joy. Because He has come. And those of us in the church age also, though not to the exclusion of joy, recognize that ours is simultaneously a season of waiting, a season of trouble, a season of difficulty. And we have to see both here. 
Because it's so essential to us as we seek to live out our status, our calling as children of God and followers of Jesus to live in this tension where both are true. The disciples of Jesus today ought not to be neither naively disconnected from the reality of suffering and difficulty that comes to followers of Jesus, and as many of you are experiencing at this very moment. But nor are they a defeated, depressed, complaining people. Always negative about the world around us. Always bemoaning how awful everything is. Ignoring essentially that we have been united with Christ. Indwelt by the Spirit. More than conquerors, the New Testament says, through Jesus Christ. I know you feel it too, friends. It's as if a wave of depression and lethargy and apathy and spiritual numbness has come over our church and many churches since 2020 and has brought a kind of unzealous, dispassionate, disconnected, and uninvested feeling in the church. And friends, I know the fatigue, it's real. I feel it and have felt it. I know that the battle with depression is real. My friends, I deal with it. Dealt with it big time just this last week. But we must remember, my friends, that Jesus has come. And that His coming is reason for joy. And that His gospel is good news. To use... Some silly kid songs as an analogy. It's not that we're in right, upright, downright happy all the time. But we do have the joy, joy, joy down in our hearts. Because Jesus has come. And so we are people who are deeply, truly delighted because of Him. Not constantly distressed. Not constantly depressed. Without that presence of joy. And so the theme of this passage is that Jesus' new way is incompatible with the asceticism of John the Baptist and his disciples. And it's also incompatible with the legalism of the Pharisees. Because his new way is ultimately a way of joy, a way of delight, a way of celebration because he has come. And with his arrival has come a new way. And that's the third scene, this parabolic illustration where we talk where we see Jesus talk about his kingdom and the need for devotion to the new way verses 16 and 17 Jesus goes on no one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment for the patch tears away from the garment and a worse tear is made neither is a is new wine put into old wine skins if it is the skins burst and the wine is spilled the skins are destroyed But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. Jesus finishes his response to their question by using another analogy. And this one is perhaps a bit harder to understand right away, but once you see it, it's really awesome. What Jesus had done is, what Jesus had come to do was to introduce something new. And we have to see this. We can't miss this fact. Jesus was doing He was correcting both the old way and also inaugurating something brand new. A kind of a new religion. 
He was critiquing, he was correcting the man-made traditions that overshadowed and contradicted the heart of the message of the Old Testament and his new message of the gospel. Because the Jewish religion was rooted in the divine revelation of God in the scriptures. Much of it was right. But their devotion to further man-made structures that were outside the scriptures was riddled with problems. And the good news that Jesus came to proclaim addressed their misunderstanding of the old covenant, its laws, its system, and also introduced the new covenant. And so what Jesus had come to do was multifaceted, but at the heart of it all was to fulfill the Old Testament promise that a new new covenant was coming where the law of God would be written on people's hearts. Jeremiah spoke of this. And where people would be changed from the inside out, which the Old Covenant law could never do. That's why Jesus had to come. That's why he had to live perfectly. That's why he had to die a substitutionary atoning death. That's why he had to rise from the grave. Because a perfect sacrifice, a perfect high priest, and therefore real, actual substitution and substantive justification and sanctification needed to be accomplished if people were going to actually enter into a relationship with God. Are you following me? I know this is a little technical and a little bit deep. And so when Jesus is speaking of new wine here, he's actually using an image to describe the new way, the good news of the kingdom. And so when he speaks of new wineskins, he's using an image to refer to anything that supports his new way. So his way, new wine, new wineskins, anything that supports his new way and holds it. And on the other hand, when he speaks of old wineskins, he's talking about the old system of Judaism, both the good, like the actual Old Testament, and the bad, like Pharisaical man-made traditions. Now, Jesus wasn't critiquing, as I said already, all Jewish tradition and practice. Some of what the Jews were doing was what God had commanded, but he was critiquing traditions and practices, those old wineskins that couldn't hold his new wine of the message of a relationship with God made possible through faith in Him. Does that make sense? You following me? Jesus actually uses two analogies here, though, to describe the newness of the kingdom way and how people should think about it in relationship to their old way. The first one is about what you do with new and old cloth, and the second about what you do with new and old wine. And when it comes to the unshrunk cloth, it's simply an analogy referring to the process of a worker preparing a new piece of cloth for use by cleaning it and combing it in that day and then removing its natural oils so that it could be washed without it, having, without it shrinking later when it was being used. And so if you mixed unprepared new cloth with old and used cloth, you'd have a situation where the integrity of the material will be compromised, which is what he says here. It's kind of like if you, if you put a, a brand new, unshrunk and unwashed patch on a hole in your jeans and then throw it in the laundry and wash it and dry it. It's going gonna, it's gonna to get messed up. Or at least that patch won't, won't be sustainable. And so Jesus is saying that in the same way, the man-made old ways of devotion to tradition don't fit with his new way of devotion through a relationship with God through faith in Jesus. And of course, the wineskins analogy refers to how animal skins were prepared for the use of the storage of wine in that day. And of course, over time, animal skin will grow hard 
It'll become less and less pliable as time goes by. And the skins of animals were used for the, the storage of fermenting and fermented beverage. And of course, those skins were in need of withstanding the, the gaseous chemical processes taking place in that uh, fermenting process while in that skin. And so the older the skin, the older the wine needed to be because as wine gets older, that fermentation changes and it's not as much of an issue as if it is this brand new wine. Whereas if you put new wine in an old wineskin, that fermentation process is going to happen. The old wineskin is not going to be able to hold it. So new wineskins were needed to accommodate the chemical pressure changes taking place in fermentation. Didn't think you'd get a science lesson today, did you? And so again, Jesus is saying that in the same way you don't put the new wine, in quotes, of his new way into the old wineskin of Judaism. Because they're incompatible, he's saying. Instead, the gospel message, his new message, the new way, Jesus is saying, needed to be put into the right kind of wineskin, a new wineskin, for the sake of preservation of both the message and its method. And so Jesus' point here is that the new way would not fit in the old way of tradition-based man-made rules and laws. And in fact, it also wouldn't even fit into the right good parts of Judaism that were faithful to the Old Testament. Just like new wine not fitting in old wineskins, some new forms, some new normals were beginning, and it wouldn't work to fit Jesus and his way into Judaism. Rather, Judaism was going to have to reform to him. Jesus' new way radically superseded man-made traditions, and that was the heart of the issue behind the question that John's disciples asked at the very beginning, along with the Pharisees. And of course, over time, it became more and more clear that Jesus' new way and his gospel message of forgiveness by faith was changing what people knew about religion and relating to God. And so, no wonder it became the case that they came to hate him. Because he threatened their way of life. He threatened their power structures, whether religiously or politically. And so he would have to go, and they killed him. And so this interlude between miracle story groups sums up the issue at heart of these last several instances in Matthew's account of Jesus' life and ministry. There are for us in these three previous passages three old wineskin groups with three old wineskin objections. If you remember at the very beginning of chapter 9, verses 1 through 8, the scribes are saying, hey, you can't say that. Only God can forgive sins. Their old wineskin there was this. The priest has to offer sacrifices of an animal at the temple in Jerusalem. You can't just say sins are forgiven. And Jesus' new way, new wine as it were, is Jesus is the priest. Jesus is the sacrifice. Jesus is the temple. He is the way to forgiveness and restoration to God. In verses 9-13 through 13 of chapter 9, you see the Pharisees saying, Hey, you shouldn't be eating with these people or in that house. They're bad. They're unclean. They're old wineskin. For the sake of purity, make sure you separate from unholy food, unholy people, and unholy places. But the new wine of Jesus' message was, For the sake of the gospel, go to sinners. 
that they might hear and believe the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then here in this passage, do you even fast, bro? The old wineskin being that fasting is necessary for rightness with God and the pursuit of holiness. And the new wine being, no, the arrival of the kingdom is cause for joy, not restraint. Jesus was quite literally a revolutionary in Jewish tradition and Jewish society and Jewish religion. And he had no problem admitting it. Isn't that fascinating? And as I already said, Jesus had no interest in downplaying the law or undercutting the Old Testament. Quite the contrary. He said explicitly that he was not here to tear down the law, but to fulfill it. But it was also true that he had come to inaugurate something new. Something even more beautiful, in a sense. Something that the Old Testament law, as the rest of the New Testament will affirm, could never do on its own. Friends, the way of King Jesus is not a way of conformity to man-made traditions or man-made rules or man-made standards or personal preferences that seek to uphold the law, the rules. The way of King Jesus is a relationship with Him. It's that simple. A relationship that starts by faith and continues through faith. Faith that He is who He says He is. That restoration to God only comes through forgiveness that Jesus does have the authority to forgive. Maybe you're here this morning and you've never turned to Jesus in faith. Today is the day. Turn to Him in faith. Maybe you're here today and you have turned to Him in faith. The message for you is largely the same. Continue to turn to Him in faith. And if you need to, to turn away from trusting in any man-made tradition or self-designated structure that may be minimizing or undermining the power of the Gospel in your life. Friends, be careful not to trust man-made standards, whether yours or someone else's, that might be a helpful tool for some people in some places at some times to pursue holiness in their lives, but not to turn to those things rather than trusting Jesus to be acceptable before God. And be careful that you don't hold others to man-made standards, because both of those things are legalism, holding yourself to it and holding others to it. And it's exactly what the Pharisees, and apparently here perhaps, what John the Baptist's disciples were doing and what Jesus was correcting. These two analogies that Jesus uses of weddings and wineskins in this passage were, were designed to illustrate the truth that the Jews' ways were insufficient for Jesus' new way. And in fact, the whole Jewish sacrificial system was becoming obsolete. I mean, you just see it all throughout the rest of the New Testament. There are no uh, impure foods anymore. You don't need to go to the temple anymore, etc., etc. The new way had dawned. Things were changing. And we have the benefit of looking back at this as a historical event, but it's much more than that, isn't it? It's a reminder for us of the beauty of the way of Jesus, the way of faith, the way of joy, and the way of a relationship with God through Him. Let's pray. Lord, there is so much in Your Word that calls us to daily 
turn to and trust in you alone. And there is so much in this passage about the way that we respond to you in faith, in joy, in gratitude. Lord, please affect our hearts with this truth. We live in this already, not yet, phase of kingdom living where You have come, where the kingdom has dawned, where the new way has been wrought and we are forgiven. We have been transformed from the inside out. and We do have the presence of Jesus with us through the Spirit. And we also long for Jesus to return. We long for our bridegroom to come and gather us as His bride. We long for the new heavens and the new earth. We long to have sorrow and sin and suffering of various kinds come to a complete and total end. And I dare say that every single one of us in this room is dealing with something at this moment that points to this tension that we live in. Help us as your people, as people of the new way, people of Christ, to live in light of both of these things. That we would not be naive about being in right, upright, downright, happy all the time, and just pretending that things are always good, but that we would neither be devoid of joy, of delight, of peace, because of all that Jesus has done for us. Lord, may Your Word be planted deep in our hearts, and may we be doers of the Word and not hearers only. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's continue in prayer for a few minutes.